Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Seven Seals by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, as we open your word this morning, a timely word for the season that we are in, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be open, and Holy Spirit, as always, I will need your help as we step forward. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for those that are welcome back, uh, interestingly, we're going to pick up our series uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, we have a little bit of, we need to recap very slightly to bring us to the point where we're at with the seven seals. Uh, for those that have been tracking with us, if you haven't and you want to catch up with the first five chapters, you can find them on our YouTube channel um, or you can find them on our podcast, but uh, a couple of things we need to know about the book of Revelation. Uh, first thing we need to know is whenever we open the Bible, whether it's Genesis, whether it's Job, whether it's the Psalms, whenever we open the Bible, we have to understand a very important truth. It cannot mean to us today what it did not mean to them then. So the question we must ask is, what did it mean to them then? And we'll unpack that. When we come to the book of Revelation, whatever your view is on the book of Revelation, many people say that Revelation is the historical account of God down through history from BC. Many people say it's into the future. And many people say that it all transpires in the moment surrounding when the book was written. Whatever your view is, you have to do something with phrases that sound like this. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. This is the unpacking. This is the unveiling. This is removing the curtain so we can see the real Jesus. A little bit more about that as we move along. You have to do something with that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, of events that must soon take place. You've got to do something with that word. If we go on a little bit further, you've also got to do something with the word and the phrasing for the time is near. What do we know about the book of Revelation? We know that it's a letter. It's a letter written to seven churches and we've covered everything that Jesus had to say individually to those churches. And you can pick that up. We know that John wrote this book around about the time that Nero, a little bit more about him in a moment, around about the time that Nero was uh, emperor of Rome. That's what we know. We know that the whatever your view, whatever set of glasses you have on when you read the book of Revelation, here's also what we know. It's not a set of linear events that transpire in order. The question we must ask is not what happens next. We have to ask, what did John see next? Because it is a series of visions that John has. And so we will ask those questions. We have asked those questions for those that have been tracking with us through the last five chapters. And the questions are, firstly, what did John see? We're going to ask that question again today as we come to what he sees concerning the seven seals. What did John see? What possibly could that mean? Second question. Third one is, and what does it mean for us today? That's the big question we've got to ask. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, many people... Uh, read, many people preach the Bible from Genesis to Jude. And that's a shame because the book of Revelation is a wonderfully powerful, profound book that speaks to our time today. I'm going to unpack 
a little bit of what that looks like. For those that have been tracking with us, you'll know that we started off with chapter one, which was an introduction to the book. We moved through uh, the message to the seven churches. And then we stepped into chapters four and five, where John says, I saw a door opened and he has an experience in heaven. Chapter four describes what he sees when he gets into heaven. Very important for our day to day. What does he see amidst the chaos, amidst everything that's about to happen? He sees that one is still seated on the throne. I've got some good news for you this morning. God is still on the throne. God is still in charge. And if all of this end time stuff frizzles your brain and short circuits a few things for you, let me make it real simple for you and perhaps even rewire a little bit. Uh, If all your end time theology is Jesus Christ will return and I need to be ready, you've got it. You've got it. We step out of chapter 4 into chapter 5 and he sees a lamb as though he was slain. And the whole of chapter 5 describes that Jesus is worthy. And I've heard many people say, well, you know, Jesus came and died on the cross, so he's worthy. I've got some news for you this morning. Jesus is not worthy because of anything that he's done. He's worthy because of who he is. Jesus was worthy before the cross. Jesus was worthy while Moses was writing everything from Genesis through the first five books. Jesus was worthy before he came, but oh, how we celebrate what he's done for us on the cross. As we come to chapter 6 this morning, we're going to start to unpack the seven seals. I need to do a little bit of reading this morning, but before we get there, it's interesting how... uh, I deliberately plan to restart the Revelation series on March 6, going back to the middle of January. You'll know that COVID was sweeping through. We had we had uh, record low attendance, volunteers, everybody was unwell. Uh, and so I made a decision that we'd ride through that period and just hope that things would begin to pan out and we'll start the Revelation series back on March 6. When I decided and made that decision, I had no idea that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and I had no idea that uh, Queensland was going to experience an event. <laughs> Long story short, if you're in Tasmania, they've got some bad weather. But in Queensland, you guys have events. <laughs> there are places in Queensland that over the period of four days recorded one and a half metres of rain. Wow. I wonder the dams are for. Making my life easier, it's bringing the fish to my back door. I don't have to go... <laughs> I don't have to go looking for them so much. But interestingly enough, uh, when we're speaking about conflict and war, uh, I noticed something very interesting. This was mostly prevalent uh, in the United States, but also here in Australia, was that while the battle in in World War II was raging, we have America, uh, most of the conflict was in the Pacific. And for many people who were back home, life seemed reasonably normal for these guys. And maybe even back here in Australia, but although the battle was raging, we, we know history, we know about Pearl Harbour, we, we know about the conflict that was happening through places like Iwo Jima and the fight for the islands and so forth. We know that Darwin was bombed, and if you're going to bomb Australia, start with Darwin, of course. But uh, at the end of the day... Everybody's going, yeah, well, it's good enough. But, but at the end of the day, these guys back home are living like it's a normal life. Like they're in a peacetime mindset. And what the US in particular did, and other countries adopted it to a small degree, was they started releasing propaganda posters. I don't know if anybody... Uh, don't put your hand up if you're alive during World War II. Well, that's, that's a secret between us and God. We'll keep that a secret today. Um, but they started releasing propaganda posters and the whole idea was to remind everybody back home, this country, whole country, all of us, we're at war. 
Yeah, okay, it might be offshore and in the Pacific, but it's all of us. Uh, I get the, the wonderful privilege to speak to a man who will celebrate his 101st birthday coming up in August. And uh, just this week, I was, uh, uh, with all the floods that had happened, he can speak about World War II and, and, and tell me about stuff that was happening in World War II. And, and he can still remember the 1929 floods in Launceston, Tasmania. He was eight years old uh, and he can still recall what was happening and, and it was just amazing. But we often forget. And, and if I can take the liberty this morning, much, particularly the church in the West, lives with this kind of peacetime mindset. And all the while, a battle rages for the hearts and souls of men. And I want to urge each and every one of us today, as we step out of chapter 5, it gets a little bit serious now. We step out of, I think I mentioned it to Rob this week, we step out of the G-rated revelation into the MA15+. plus. Now, as we're, as we're stepping in. There's no R-rated, you'd be pleased to know. Because it gets serious. And this morning, whatever view you have of revelation is actually inconsequential this morning. Whatever your timeline of whatever you're reading in the book of Revelation, you are going to find that is inconsequential to the information we find in here this morning. I'm happy to tell you where I land this morning as we work our way through and ask ourselves, what do we see when we get here? But I would encourage each of us to adopt a wartime mindset and a wartime lifestyle. We're too prone to to drift into a peacetime mindset. We begin to call, a peacetime mindset looks like this. We begin to call luxuries needs. We are subtly seduced to love what the world loves. Our priorities mirror the world's priorities. Are your priorities today, is the heaviest thing on your heart and mind today, paying off your mortgage and making sure you climb the career ladder at work? Is, is that your priority? Because everybody out there is dancing to that tune this morning. I have, to, I have to fill my bank account. I have to get higher on the career ladder. And do you know what? Uh, Shane Warne tells us, you're not promised your tomorrow. Our priorities mirror the world's priorities. We begin to feel at home on planet Earth. Uh, We heard some verses from 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter is one of my favourite epistles. But the very first verse, Peter says, uh, to the elect exiles, to the elect strangers, to the elect sojourners, to the elect aliens. Now, as you look around the room, there may be people here that look like aliens. But that's not what Peter meant. What he meant was, you guys aren't from here. This is not your home. Stop building kingdoms and castles here. Stop treasuring what's here. Jesus came and the message of the gospel is to change your treasure. Change where you place all of your treasure. But a peacetime mindset says that this is the ultimate. We increasingly seek to fit in and be accepted by our peers and that is seeping into the church. The church doesn't want to be seen to be controversial in the West anymore. We just need to be tolerant. At no point did God ask us to be tolerant of people's sin or your own get to that one a little bit. We preference popularity over standing for truth and we are in danger. If you read the book of Acts, anybody here want a church like the book of Acts? Yeah, carefully raise your hands this morning. Those guys live with a wartime mindset. They lived a wartime lifestyle and a wartime mindset. This wasn't their home. Chapter 6, verse 1, what does John see? Let's ask ourselves that question. I'm going to read through this passage. We're going to see that as the seals are unpacked, he says, Now I watched, watched, 
When the lamb opened one of the seven seals, who was worthy to open these seals, by the way? This is enormously important. It's enormously important that in chapter 5, what we learn is there was only one who was worthy to open the seals. Only one. Jesus. Who's the one that opens the seals? Jesus. I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come, like. You're going to hear that word a lot as you work your way through the book of Revelation, the word like. Verse 2, and I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Scales are always speaking about justice in Scripture, just as an FYI. This time it's economical injustice. A pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or water. Fourth seal now, really important. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. You know, when we come to the book of Revelation, I've heard a lot of people say, well, the book of Revelation has to be interpreted differently to the rest of the Bible because everything you read in here is different to the rest of the Bible. That's wrong. The language we find in the book of Revelation, we find throughout the Bible. In fact, if you want to have a fuller, more in-depth understanding of the book of Revelation, you will do well to study the ten plagues and God's judgment on Egypt. Let me give you an example of what I mean this morning in Ezekiel chapter 14. Now, Ezekiel, by the way, is pronouncing judgment on Israel and on the people of God. And if you've just read the fourth horseman, I wonder what this sounds like. Uh, verse 21 of, verse four of chapter 14, uh, Ezekiel says, For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment. This is on the people of God. Sword, famine, wild beasts and pestilence. Oh, and to cut off from it man and beast. Do we only read these things in the book of Revelation? Does history only tell us that we see them then? No, we see that God actually hasn't changed from Genesis right through to Revelation. What we are beginning to unveil and unpack, what what John sees is an enormous scene of chaos. Does anybody feel like there might be a little bit of chaos going on around us right now? It's interesting how, uh, I'm glad in one sense, but it's interesting how we have a deluge of floods in Queensland and nobody's heard anything about COVID for almost two weeks, Uh, which is fine. But at the end of the day, it's not going anywhere. And this morning, I want to be absolutely clear to you, I don't know how many strains of COVID we'll end up with and I don't really care. I don't know what's going to happen between Russia and Ukraine. I don't know whether we're going to end up in a third world war. I don't know these things, but I do know that this planet has known chaos from the moment man plunged himself into sin. Plunged himself, that's right, that's what I said. From the moment man plunged himself into sin, we have seen that nothing new is under the sun. But what we do see sometimes is God either uses or God causes these events for two reasons to execute his judicial purposes upon sin and to refine his church. I've got some good news for you this morning. 
If you're sitting in a church pew in the West, God is currently refining his church. He does that by turning the heat up. Turns the heat up. And and I can tell you now, there's people that are walking out of church because they don't like the heat. My foster mum, God bless her cotton socks. You cannot be in the kitchen with this woman. It's a a one-person station. You've got to get out of the kitchen. And some people, you know what? There's too much going on here or I'm out. What I see, I see COVID as a tool in God's hand to turn the heat up on his church. You could, three years ago, you could not have convinced me that there would have been a global event that would have closed the church down for four and a half months and seen me preaching to an empty room for four and a half months. I, I, I got a few less amens in those days. Some people, like the person who was on sound, wherever he is, you still used to fall asleep. doesn't matter how many people are in the room, they still fall asleep when I'm preaching. Not looking at anybody in particular. <laughs> but I was able to preach barefoot, which was, I always wanted to be the barefoot preacher, so I got to do it for four and a half months, listen. <laughs> what we see here, is that things get real for, for these guys. There's a whole lot of chaos going on around them. And there's a whole lot of chaos going on around us right now. And I've got some enormous hope for you, by the way. We're going to step into chapter 7 in a minute. And, ah, oh, the glorious, profound truth we find in chapter 7. If you're sitting here wondering, I wonder who the 144,000 are. <laughs> oh, wait for that one. That's a beauty. But, but let me read on why it gets a little bit serious for these guys. Uh, I'm going to make some observations in a minute and, and bring you to them. But the fifth seal I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, hold Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And when they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had. Where Whatever set of glasses you look at the book of Revelation through this morning, I'm happy for you to look at that through them glasses. But let me give you some observations I made that would apply to these people today. The people that are reading this, one of the easiest ways to interpret scripture is to pretend you're looking over somebody's shoulder who it was written to. So for a moment, can we come to the seven churches and think, I wonder how these guys received what was written to them. I wonder how they're reading that. If we could sit next to them and say, how how do you guys understand this? Maybe they would make the same observations that we make. Uh, As we go through the first four horsemen, here's some observations that I made just from history and you can find out for yourself. Uh, One horseman on a white horse came out conquering and was given a special crown. And Caesar Augustus, who was reigning at the time of the birth of Christ, was given a crown like any other emperor, unlike any other emperor. He was given the Pontifex Maximus crown and and he was known for his conquering. Just an observation. Uh, this, this Caesar directly after him, the red horse that takes peace from the earth, it, it was a guy by the name of Tiberius. And uh, he came after Augustus. He was the reluctant emperor. Didn't want the throne. Listen, Caesar's like the head of a biker gang. You don't really want that job because you've got a target on your back. But he didn't want to be emperor, but he was known for his inner and outer unrest. And his life was known for treason and trials and indifference. Taking peace from the earth. Interesting observation. Uh, After him comes a guy by the name of Caligula, uh, the black horse bringing uh, steep inflation and famine. Uh, Caligula, uh, although it speaks of economic injustice, he was known as an extraordinarily cruel Caesar and he was deeply financially inept. That's what history records about him. 
But here's one that we can cross-reference from Scripture, if you like. After him comes Claudius. We read of a pale horse given authority to kill a fourth of the, of the, the earth with the sword, famine, pestilence and wild beasts. Claudius is the emperor that extended the might and rule of Rome ruthlessly into North Africa, and he's the one that made Britain a province of Rome. Claudius, uh, Caligula, sorry, Claudius, excuse me, uh, uh, Acts 11.28 lists him and records a great famine under his time, Acts 11.28. And the fifth seal we see the voice of the martyrs crying out and the Caesar after Caligula is Nero. And Nero, to sum it up in today's terms, was somewhat cray-cray. In 66 AD, after blaming the Christians for setting fire to Rome, after persecuting Christians, and I'll describe some of the things he did in a moment, but he, he makes a decree to invade Jerusalem and sack the temple. That happens in 70 AD, and you, you can read about that in history as well. And whatever lens we look through the book of Revelation, what these guys were experiencing, when this was written, this is what these guys are living right now. That's what the Christians of this day are living. They're living underneath a Caesar that is bent on destroying them, that used to dip them in bitumen and light them on poles to light the pathway through Rome. These guys were chucked into the Colosseum and used in the Roman games. Some horrendous things that Nero did. The Roman historian Tacitus says that under Nero, he inflicted punishments on the Christians in this is a Roman historian. He said that we were exquisitely painful. And amidst all of that chaos, I wonder whether they were asking the same questions that we may even ask today. Is God sovereign? God, have you lost control? We're going to see the answer to that question is no. I love how this chapter finishes the sixth seal tells us this. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Three times in scripture that language is used. Joseph uses the sun and the moon language when he's speaking about a dream that he has concerning his mum and dad. We, we know that in Joel, we read that the sun was darkened, the moon was turned to blood and the stars, that is God announcing judgment against an unbelieving Israel. You can read those chapters and verses for yourself. What do we find when we come here? This is a reference to Israel, an unbelieving apostate Israel. Why? Because the fig tree sheds its winter fruit shaken. Let's come down to the end. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and, and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. Hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That is a profound question. If we look down through history... Who can stand? Here's a picture of kings. Here's a picture of the rich and and, and the influential of the day. And each one of them, figuratively speaking, are crying out, hide us from the face of him. 
And what do we learn here? We learn that there's an immense chaos and, and God may be acting very judicially and, and we see the fall of an empire, uh, the Roman Empire crumbles very quickly from here on in and we see that everything that Israel knows and Jews know is about to come to an end because the, uh, Jerusalem's about to be invaded and the temple's about to be destroyed. It's only ever happened twice in history, 586 BC and 70 AD, but it's about to happen again. And what do we learn? That God hasn't changed. Do you know he's, he is as serious about sin today as he was all the way back in Genesis? God's standard has not lowered. And who is there that can stand? That's a great question. As we're working our way through this morning, we're going to answer that question before we go anywhere. But who is there that can stand before him? How dare we, as his people, think that we can play games with him? How how dare we think that we can take him half-heartedly? Who are we to say, I'll have a half-hearted response to Christ? Who do we think we are? The Bible doesn't give us that option. The Bible paints three responses to the person of Jesus Christ. He is still the only man. I don't care what they want to do in educational facilities. He is still the only man that has divided history and you've got to do something with him. And there were three responses to the person of Christ. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were either afraid of him and ran away with him or they were besotted with him and cast the fullness of their life upon him. Which one best describes you today? There's no fourth option here. There's no peacetime mindset here. There's no, I'm going to tack Jesus onto the end of my life. Jesus is not your insurance policy to live your life how you like down here and you can slip on into heaven when it's all done and dusted. No, no, the reality of heaven is here now. I've got some good news this morning. I don't doubt for a moment that this room is filled with people that love Jesus. But when I read through these passages, I was enormously challenged. Because I'm too prone to drift into a peacetime mindset. Who is there that can stand? What hope is there for us? I love chapter 7. I love the picture that it paints here. Have a listen to these words. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending and rising from the rising of the sun with the seal, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea, all the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Do you know this, this reference to sealing is enormous, it's profound, and it's deep. Uh, I think one of the most tragic things, I'm, I'm not sure whether we've watched those movies, you know, where they find somebody's body and it arrives at the morgue and, and they call them a John Doe. Have you ever heard the reference John Doe? Well, well, a John Doe in the morgue is somebody that we don't know. What they're saying when they put John Doe on there is they're saying, you know what, we don't know this guy. We don't know the the history. There's Jane Doe's too, by the way. But uh, we don't know this guy and there's nobody here. Here's the really important thing. Uh, He's a John Doe because not only do we not know his name, not, not only do we not know what's going on with this guy, but nobody's here to claim him. What sealing means is there's no John Doe's in heaven. When God seals us, and the reference in the New Testament to sealing is that he has sealed us with his promised Holy Spirit. When God seals, God walks around putting his 
brand on saying mine. Mine. Cat lover, but mine. (laughs) And in first century language, a seal authenticated and designated ownership. What God is saying is you're mine. And in the midst of all of this conflict, what is God saying? I'm going to hold back. That's what the angels are doing right now. They're holding back the four winds. They're holding back the chaos. They're holding back everything that's coming. Why? Because God's going to seal all that is that are his. And that seal means you get your hands off. That seal means you get your hands off my people. They belong to me. This is not physical protection. I know that's what you want to hear this morning. I know you want to hear that uh, this is all about God coming down and he's going to give you this rapturous life. You're going to live in Armani suits and drive mercs while everybody else is ravaged with God's judgment. That's not what happens here. This is about your faith and your salvation. And God says the enemy's been told to get his hands off you. And we need to deal with 144,000 because this is important. Numbers are very big. The book of Numbers highlights this, but God's huge on numbers. And I heard the number of the sealed. Who are those that are sealed? 144,000. Now, I digress for a moment. A couple of things real quick. If you're a Jehovah's Witness this morning, this is a literal number for you. You know those guys that come around dressed in suits? I don't wear a suit, so I'll never make a Jehovah's Witness, Robin, sorry. But you know those guys that come around knocking on your door going, they're doing that because they're trying to buy their way into the 144,000. It's a shame. It is. Because they don't have to do it. Entry into the 144,000 is by faith in Christ. Because the 144,000, when we see a number multiplied by itself, multiplied by a thousand, that means completeness. And the number 12 speaks about redemption. What's God saying? This is the complete amount of the redeemed people. And God has sealed them. That's an enormous hope for us as the people of God. Why? World War Three? Okay. God sealed you. And we need to remove language that says the enemy can come and do to you whatever he wants, whenever he wants. That's not how, that's not how it works. The Bible is very clear how these things work. Either God lowers the hedge, Job, or you give him permission. It's the only way the enemy gets power in your life. He's not a free agent. He can't pass God's seal. There's no John Doe's in heaven. Reading on in chapter 7, we need to answer the question, who on earth then can stand? That's what we're asking. Revelations chapter 6, who can stand? Good question. Verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. This is what I love about the gospel. This is gospel language right now. This is what Jesus came for. Why? Because when we're in heaven and we're looking at a great multitude, it's going to look like this. They were from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. In heaven, it won't matter what the colour of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your mum and dad, where they come from. It doesn't matter whether you like or cats or not. It doesn't matter. You are allowed. You are numbered. Every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing, standing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes 
with palm branches in their hands. It's like a Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of God delivering the people out of uh, Egypt. This looks like a heavenly Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody celebrating being saved. Uh, this is a really important verse coming up. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Job 2.9, uh, J.I. Packer, one of the last century's greatest theologians, said you can hinge the whole Bible on Jonah 2.9, which says salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah got it. Jonah got it. Jonah got the fact that salvation is of God. Why? Because he stepped into Nineveh, a city of about 120,000 people, and he said a, a sermon of about four words, didn't mention God, just said you're all going to die. And they repent. That's a work of God. Uh, let, let me help you this morning. You didn't save yourself. Let me help you this morning. You didn't find God. God found you. Let me, let me also help you this morning. You won't keep yourself. God keeps you. What did Jesus pray about his disciples? That he would, that he would keep them. John chapter 17. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I'm just praying that you keep them while they're here. Wow. Who can stand? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we say, Amen. Let's finish off this section now in verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, great answer, by the way. Sir, you know, I don't know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Have a listen to this really interesting verse that comes next. They have, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When I read that, I thought, hey, that's a really interesting. They wash their robes? This morning, when we unearth the word tribulation, it conjures up a lot of things for a lot of people. And some people will look at this and say the tribulation's already been in history before what was written. Some people say that the great tribulation's what, happens, what is happening there and then right there. And then some people say the tribulation's in the future. Timeline, again, inconsequential. What is being highlighted here is that no matter what came against them, whatever tribulation it is, whatever it is that came against them, uh, they washed their robes. How? They washed their robes by a life that demonstrated their reliance upon the sacrifice of Christ. They persevered through the tribulation. That's what we know. They lived a life that demonstrated it. And wherever you land on timelines this morning, if you look around the globe, something will... Pretty obvious. Tribulation is getting worse. The hearts of men, do you know the heart of man hasn't gotten better? We live in an age today filled of, uh, look at the amount of communication tools we have, and yet people are so less known today than they ever used to be. I remember talking to your dad and he can re recall that when people had a phone, one person in the street had a phone and everybody used to go up and use their phone. And if you can remember that this morning, keep it to yourself. 
But we have all these communication tools and yet so many people are unknown and, and so many people don't know who they are. We have, uh, anybody ever watched that deeply theological movie called Jason Bourne, The Bourne Identity? Anybody? That's deeply theological. Well, I'm going to claim it is. I'll find a scripture for it in a minute. But it's an interesting point that's made there. I think the world is full of Jason Bournes that have got spiritual amnesia. They've got no idea who they are or how they got here. And they're running around this world and they're getting bits and pieces from all over the place and they don't know how to put them together and you will never put them together and you will never answer all the questions. Remember how Jason Bourne's trying to answer all those questions? You're not going to answer those questions until you find the person of Jesus Christ. Then it all just comes boom. They wash their robes. Why? A purity demonstrated by a persevering faith in Christ's Redemption. As I bring this to a close this morning, I want to ask you, do you live with a wartime mentality? Do you know right now on the globe there are Christians living with a wartime mentality? And the reality is that God is moving in power and revival is sweeping those places. I'm going to name two of them right now. One of them is Iran. Of all the places you would think that the gospel would take traction, you wouldn't name Iran. One of the greatest revivals history has seen is happening in Iran right now. Muslims daily are having dreams of Jesus and converting to Christ. I love how God meets people where they are. They believe, Muslims believe, that God speaks to man through dreams. So he does. I remember the testimony, listening to the testimony of one man who, who was from Iraq at the time. He went back as a missionary to Iraq and he woke up one morning, walk, walked out to his mum and said, I've been having these dreams of this Jesus. Who, who is this Jesus? She puts him on a plane and says, you've got to go to America. Your dad and your brothers will kill you. You're out. While he's in America, he has these dreams every night for seven years. He walks into a church, finds Christ and is gloriously converted. And I can remember the person asking him, what changed for you after that? He said, I stopped having the dreams. And the greatest revival is happening in Iran right now, but these guys are living in a wartime mindset. Why? Because it's been thrust upon them. If you name Jesus in Iran, they will kill you. An 80-year-old pastor, just last year, an 80-year-old pastor was strung up and crucified in the middle of a village in Iran on a Sunday morning. The other place where revival has been happening very powerfully for many years now is a place called China. You don't hear about the church in China. It doesn't, make the, it doesn't make the international news. Sky News doesn't report about the church in China. They are an underground church, but they are exploding. But they'll throw you in prison or kill you. You disappear in China. And I say those two things to highlight something this morning. We are in the middle of a battle. And whether you feel it over here in the West or not, you're going to. Because God will refine his church. And God will bring a wartime mindset and a wartime lifestyle. It's interesting how when I read through the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, I begin to get glimpses of this. You know, a wartime mindset changes your prayer life. If I can, before you send, press send on the emails just this morning, changes your prayer life. Often we pray... Do your prayers sound like this, maybe? Uh, uh, Father, 
can you give me that new promotion? Um, Father, I just... And our prayers become all about us, but I, I found something intriguing about the book of Acts and I found something intriguing about Paul. Paul doesn't pray prayers like that. Paul, when he was praying for the churches, wasn't praying. He didn't pray for Ephesus and say, I'm, I'm praying that you guys will break the 200 barrier. Never prayed that. He prayed that their eyes would be open to the expense of the love of Christ. He prayed that the false teachers would be driven out of the church. He prayed that Christ would be glorified through their lives. He prayed that they would be preserved. A wartime mindset changes our prayer life. Why? Because it changes your priorities. Do you know in in the glimpse of a couple of days, Ukrainians went from a normal life, going to work, going to school, tanks crossed the border, their priorities changed as quick as you can click your fingers. All of a sudden, every man in Ukraine's got a gun, And our priorities have changed now. What's important to us has changed now. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive me for my proneness to drift into a peacetime mindset. I pray for every person in the room this morning. I pray that you would keep us. I pray that you would preserve us. I pray that you would refine us. I pray that you would strip away our love for this world. I pray that you would use this church and every person in it to impact this city with the power that we know can come. Father, we cry out because we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you in our lives. We need your empowerment. Thank you that we're sealed. Thank you that the enemy cannot steal us or snatch us out of your hand. Father, I pray that you would come with power upon each one of us, that you would grip our hearts in such a manner, Lord God, that each and every one of us would let go of the grip that we have on this world and cling ever tighter to you. In your wonderful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.